sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church. We'll be in Matthew 20, starting in verse 17 today. The title of today's message is Jesus, the Servant King. I want to pray for us again. And you may think, well, we just got done praying. And that's true. And we, can, we always need prayer. It is always good to show our dependence on the Lord. So let's pray. God, you are so good to us. You have served us in so many ways. Ultimately, by sending your son, God, we, we ask your forgiveness. God, we, we depend on your forgiveness for we have fallen short where we have failed to serve you as we should. God, we have failed to serve and be a servant to our neighbor. God, forgive us of our pride. Forgive us that we think that we're too good to serve someone. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that your death covers all sins, sins of pride, sins of arrogance. God, let us look to you, who, the one who is truly humble, the true servant. God, be with me as I open your word and proclaim your truth. God, be with those listening that they would have hearts to hear and they would leave changed. God, we love you and thank you. We depend on you in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 20, verse 17. Jesus, the servant king. And if you're taking notes, uh, the key words today are serve and servant. So if you want to mark how many times I say serve and servant, it's going to be a lot. So a little recap before we get into this week's passage. Uh, last week we saw Jesus uh, flips the world upside down. It's not the rich, it's not the prideful, it's not the arrogant, the selfish that are first, but those who are humble, those who give their things away, those who are dependent on God, they are truly first. And we don't need to be first in the world's eyes, we need to be first in God's eyes. And one way to do that, we saw, is to have our priorities straight when it comes to our money and our relationships. So when it comes to our money, we can't serve both God and money. We can't be dependent on our stuff and our possessions. We need to leave that behind and, know, and realize that it's all God's and we use it for his glory. And then we must not forsake Jesus when it comes to persecution. So even if your closest family member persecutes you for the faith, Jesus calls us to remain faithful to him. And this week, Jesus continues the theme of turning the world upside down. First, by reminding us that he is the Savior King that came to die in order to save and reign. He is the Servant King. And since we follow a servant, sacrificial king, we too are to live as servants. For to be great is to serve, which is totally opposite of the world, what the world teaches. The world teaches that you must make everyone else do what you want. You must hold power over others. You must try to stay in control. 
You must try to self-promote and self-uplift at the expense of another. The world teaches that you can inflict pain, you can hurl threats to control another person. And at the end of the day, the world teaches that to reach what you want by any means necessary, even if someone else gets in the way. Now, as a follower of Jesus, we are not to act like that. We are not to have power over, but we are to have power under. We are to use our power and our authority to lift others up, not push them down. We are to seek the well-being of others. Our strength is actually found in our ability to build others up. And so today's passage will have uh, three main parts. Um, we'll first look at the cross, and then the cup, and then the ransom. All of which point to Jesus' sacrificial death for our sins. And we imitate his service for us. So... Last week, starting in verse 16, Jesus ended the parable of the day laborers in which he gave this parable to illustrate this point. The last will be first and the first last. So it's not the one who works the hardest. It's not the one who uh, gets paid. They don't get paid the most, but it's dependent on God's grace. He turns everything that we think upside down. It's the humble who are actually first. And this week, he gives us another picture of what it really means to be first. Starting in verse 17, as we look to Jesus and the cross. Verse 17. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the twelve disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, that is, he's referring to himself as the Son of Man, as in Daniel 7.13, the divine Son of Man. The Messiah, he will actually be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes are the religious leaders of the day. They are the, the, the preachers, the teachers. They, they know the Old Testament. But Jesus, the Son of Man, is actually going to be handed over to them to be condemned to death. So the ones who should have known Jesus was the Messiah actually want to condemn him. Why is that? Well, a couple reasons. One, Jesus confronted them on their wrong teaching and their sins. And then the primary reason, if that wasn't enough, he was claiming to be God, and they didn't think he was. So they accused him of blasphemy, of lying, and saying, you're not really God. You can't claim that. So we're going to condemn you to death. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 19. Since the chief priests and the scribes don't have the authority or the means to actually carry out that death sentence, it says they will actually hand him over to the Gentiles. That is, to the nations, the non-Jews. And in this case, it will be the Romans. They will hand them over to the Gentiles, and Jesus, it says, will be mocked. Now, to be mocked is to be made fun of, to laugh at. So the picture is Jesus is claiming to be the, the creator of the universe, the king, the savior, but he's going to be beat and hung on a cross. And so people are going to be making fun of him, saying, oh, really, you're supposed to be the son of God? So Jesus not only endures physical pain, he endures emotional pain, social pain of being laughed at. And then he will be flogged. That is, he, he will be whipped excruciatingly painful. 
And then finally, he will be crucified. He will be nailed on a cross. Now, the crucifixion was a normal death sentence for slaves and servants and people of lower status in Rome. It was, again, humiliating and extremely painful. Now, he'll be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But the good news is that on the third day, he will be raised. Jesus will be raised from the dead. And so Jesus tells them this. He's always reminding his disciples that he's going to the cross. To be the Savior, to be the King, he must go and die. And so a couple Old Testament references that Jesus really fulfills Psalm 22 in a lot of ways. And he'll quote Psalm 22 on the crucifixion. But let's just look at a couple ways where we see the fulfillment of Psalm 22. Specifically, we'll see Psalm 22, verse 7. It says, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. So that's how they mock him. They say, oh, if, if he's God, if, if God takes pleasure in him, if he is the beloved son of God, then let God rescue him. They mock him and make fun of him. So Jesus, this will happen. Jesus really fulfills Psalm 22 in this. And the people that mock and make fun of Jesus actually speak better than they know because God really will rescue him. He will raise him from the dead. And then back in verse uh, 19, not only we saw that not only people make fun of him, they'll flog him and then he'll be crucified. Again, the crucifixion is also hinted at in Psalm 22, verse 16. It says, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So Jesus will be pierced. They will nail his hands and feet to the cross. And again, this is the mocking, the flogging, the crucifixion is undeserved. Jesus is the only one that lived the perfect life and he's dying a sinner's death. Why did he do this? Why is he going to the cross? Isaiah 53, 5 clues this in. It says he was pierced because of our rebellion. He wasn't pierced because of something he did, but because of what we did. We rebelled against God, and he was crushed because of our iniquities, our sins, our disobedience. That's why he was pierced. And while this is sad and tough to hear about how our God, our Savior, will die, we must remember the good news that he will raise again, be raised again on the third day. In his resurrection, that's why we worship on Sunday. Every week, we remember this day as the Resurrection Sunday. Now, we're going to have a special Resurrection Sunday next month. I'd love for you to join us and invite your friends and family next month, April 17th, for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But every Sunday is really Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And like I said, even Psalm 22 hints towards Jesus' resurrection, not only when they mock him and they say, will the Lord save you? Will the the Lord help you? He will. Because we see at the end of uh, Psalm 22, verse 19, he says, but you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. So he cries out to God saying, help me. And then in 21, we see that he answered him. God will answer 
and he will raise Jesus from the dead. And that is our hope. That is why we come and worship a risen Savior. Now, Jesus prophesies these events, showing himself to be divine, showing himself to be God in the ability to prophesy. And Jesus' death, Jesus' crucifixion, he was last in the world's eyes. He was stripped of all his honor. He was mocked. He was whipped. He was nailed to a cross. He was killed as a criminal, killed as a blasphemer and a liar. But from God's eyes, Jesus was the Savior of the world, the beloved Son, fully God, fully man. He lived the perfect life, was obedient to death, even death on a Roman cross, so that through faith in him we can be saved. We can be saved from our sins, saved from the punishment that we deserve. And Jesus, and for us today, we need to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection and enter into the kingdom of God now and for eternity. Now let's look at, to Jesus as our ultimate example of what it means to be last, to be a servant, to sacrifice it all for the sake of others. As we turn to the next section, the cup in verse 20, Matthew 20, 20. So the mother of Zebedee's sons, so that's going to be James and John, the apostles. So if you're ranking apostles by how close and the stories that they have in the Bible, it seems like Jesus has this inner circle of Peter and James and John. So we have James and John's mother approaching him uh, with her sons. So her sons are there, and we'll see them being addressed in a moment. And she approached him, and she knelt down to ask him for something. Now, you may have done this to get your mom to ask you ask somebody for something for you, you know. And in this case, uh, their mom might have been actually Jesus's aunt, and so they're thinking, oh, she'll put a good word in for us. And so she, maybe she, it would look bad if we asked for this, but if our mom asked, it might be better, right? And so, what is she going to ask? Let me give you a little context before we get to the question. Remember last week, we talked about how Jesus promised the 12 apostles glorious thrones. We see in Matthew 19, 28, he says, Truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, that is, in the new creation, the new heavens, when everything is made right, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So likely hearing this promise of her sons getting these, one of these 12 thrones, she's going to ask that they get the best seats in the house. So, verse 21, Jesus says, what do you want? He asked her. She says, promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. So again, she wants to have her sons to have the best positions, one on the right and one on the left of Jesus. Now, on the face of it, what would be the problem with this? Because that's what my father-in-law asked me one day, probably a couple years ago now. I'm at, over at their house for dinner, and we're after dinner we're talking, and he opens up the Bible, and he says, Josh, read this verse. And I, I read the verse, and I say, okay, well, what, what's the question? He's like, well, well, what's wrong with their question? 
And I say, well, maybe they're prideful. Maybe they shouldn't be asking to sit. Maybe they should be more humble. He's like, yeah, anything else? I was like, mm, you're way smarter than me. I don't know. And he's like, he's like, okay, imagine the throne room of God. I was like, okay. He said, what do you see? I said, well, I got Jesus sitting on the right hand of the Father. And he's like, yes. And so if they're asking to sit on the left and right of Jesus, that would put someone where? I was like, in between Jesus and the Father. Yeah, that seems like a problem. <laughs> I don't know how I didn't see that before. And well, that investigation and that question has been going on for a little over a year now. And hopefully I'm going to write my dissertation on this passage and exploring the different interpretations and uh, teaching what I think is going on here. So one of the things going on here, I think, is that they, they don't understand the relationship between Jesus and the Father just yet. And so they don't understand that Jesus is the only one who can sit on the right hand of God. And so I think they unwittingly, they, by mistake, ask to take Jesus' place. They're just trying to get the best seats on the throne, and they're, in effect, trying to get in between Jesus and the Father. And so we'll see Jesus say in verse 22... He, he points their, the question out. He points their problem out this way. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, I say, I understand when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, is because to have this high position, to, to be on the right hand of God, you're going to have to take the cup. That is, you would have to die for the sins of the world. Now, in our, in our day and time, the imagery of taking the cup does, does not readily convey the wrath of God or the sins of the world. But here's some evidence for why I think Jesus is referring to his death on the cross and taking the sins. When he says, are you able to drink the cup? They should have said, no, we're not able to do that. But, so here's why I think the cup refers to uh, Jesus' death. First piece of evidence Jesus just predicted his death right before this. And he'll refer to his death again in just a few verses in verse 28. So we have like a, a the context is, is focusing on Jesus going to the cross. And he's like, I'm about to go there. I'm about to drink this cup, Jesus says. And then secondly, we have the Old Testament context in which the most common usage of the cup refers to God's wrath. And I'll just point out two verses. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it. And all the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. And then also in Jeremiah 25, 15, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I'm sending you drink from it. So it's the image of God's wrath being poured out on the nations, on the people who are unrepentant, on the, on the rebels, those disobedient, the unrighteous. They will take the cup of wrath of God. They will be punished for their sin. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to go do that. I'm about to take that cup, not because of my sin, but because of other people's sin. And Jesus makes this extremely clear later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew 26, verse 28. At the Last Supper, he, he takes the cup and he says, This is my, the, my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we have the cup imagery again in reference to his death. So the implied answer to the question when they, he says, are you able to drink this? They should have said, no, we are not able to take the wrath of God for sin of the world. We are sinful ourselves. We need a sacrifice to take our sin. We are not perfect. So they, they, they did not know what they were asking. The right hand of God is reserved for you alone, Jesus. But again, the disciples are slow to understand, aren't they? As we are. They say to him, we are able. <laughs> and this is like, man, what are you guys thinking? Now they likely think that Jesus is asking if they are willing to suffer and die for him. So they probably understand the cup as referring to suffering in general. And they're probably like, oh, he's not asking us to take the sins of the world. That's crazy. But maybe if he's asking, are we truly committed to him? Are we willing to suffer and die for him? Because we see this this mentality um, in John 18.10. We see Simon Peter will be willing to die to protect Jesus. He He had a sword and he drew it because they're trying to arrest Jesus, right? And Peter struck the high priest's servant, and he cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And at that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, a reference to the cup. Peter was trying to protect him, trying to keep him from going to the cross. He was willing to die for Jesus and says, Jesus is like, that's not what this is about. You don't need to protect me. I am willingly going to the cross. I predicted that this would happen, and I need to drink this cup so that you can be saved. And so when Jesus responds, despite their misunderstanding, Jesus will condescend to them. In other words, he's like, all right, guys, you clearly think I'm talking about something else because you can't die for the sins of the world. So I'll just speak on your level. It's kind of like when you're talking to a little kid and he's not making any sense. You kind of use his words, trying to communicate with him. And so he's going to take on their meaning. He's going to condescend and talk to them at their level. So I think that's what Jesus is doing here in verse 23. He says, okay, I get what you guys are saying. You think you're going to suffer and die, and you will. He says, you will indeed drink my cup. Not that you'll die for the sins of the world, but that you will suffer for me, in my name, not to protect me, but because merely for following me, you will be persecuted. And we'll see James is actually recorded to be executed by King Herod in Acts chapter 12. And John also likely suffered at some level for the faith. We see following Jesus doesn't guarantee physical health, doesn't guarantee physical wealth or prosperity in this life. Instead, Jesus promises to save you from the power of sin, to save you from eternal death and give you eternal life. We should be ready for trials here on this earth. Be ready for persecution. Be ready to stand firm on the promises of God. And even though James and John will suffer and possibly die for following Jesus, Jesus says to them, even though you're suffering, even though you drink the cup, He says, but to sit at my right and my left, to have those high positions that you're asking for, he says, that's not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. 
Jesus, again, is likely condescending to their misunderstanding. They're just asking for the highest places on the throne, in the throne room. He's not saying that they'll be able to have the right-hand seat of God. They don't realize Jesus is the only one qualified to sit on the right hand of God the Father. They're just seeking the high places of honor. But Jesus says it's not for him to give, but for whom it has been prepared. In other words, the highest places in heaven, the highest thrones, are not given to those who merely ask for it or who get their mother to ask for them. It is not even guaranteed to those who suffer persecution for the faith. Instead, the places of high status are totally dependent on the grace of God. You see, the Father has prepared it for someone. It is by His grace that they will have this high status. It's the same with salvation. You can't earn your salvation. You can't boast about that. You can't boast about earning a high place in heaven either. Both are dependent on God's good gift to you. And one of God's good gifts to His people is the ability to be a servant, to be humble, to serve one another, which Jesus will explain how to act as humble servants, looking to him as the ultimate example as we look at the third section, the ransom in verse 24. So when the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Now indignant, they're, they're angry at the two brothers. Why are they angry? They heard James and John ask for the two highest thrones. And if they have the two highest thrones, then that means they would be over the other ten apostles. But Jesus doesn't grant them those positions, um, but he doesn't tell them no either. He kind of leaves it open. It's, we don't know who's going to get those positions. It's up to the Father, right? Nevertheless, the apostles are angry, angry with James and John, and possibly because they, the apostles have a misunderstanding of authority and power. They think if these two brothers are going to be over us and have authority over us, then we don't want that. But because Jesus uses this opportunity to teach about authority and power. Because not from how the world misuses authority and power, but how God's people are to be servant leaders. Look in verse 25. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That is, they have power over people, pushing people down to get what they want. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. And Jesus points to the rulers of the nations, the kings, the queens, the Caesar of Rome, King Herod. Those in high positions of authority have a tendency to act as tyrants over people. That is to dominate, to oppress them, to lord it over, to be a tyrant, is to use your power for your own advantage. And Jesus says in verse 26, it must not be like that among you. So they were arguing, they were angry about James and John being above them, having a greater status, maybe authority over them. And they're like, we don't want someone in authority over us. Like that, Because in their mind, they thought people with authority rule over them like with an iron fist and push them down. <clears throat> Jesus says it's not like that. That's not how, as followers of the, in the kingdom, you don't use your power and authority to benefit yourself, but you're actually to use it to benefit others. In other words, authority in and of itself is not bad. 
but how one uses the authority is important to God. For example, just like money. Money can be used to help the poor. It can be used to take care of our families, enjoy the blessings of God. But also, we know that money can be used for selfish pleasures. It can be uh, acquired greedily. People can worship their money more than God. People can worship their money and love their money more than they love their neighbor. So we know that money can be used both positively and negatively. It's the same with authority. God does not do away with authority and power structures because people misuse it to hurt people for their own advantage. Instead, Jesus teaches his apostles how to rightly think and act in positions of authority and leadership. We must not act like the world, using power and positions to push people down, but we must use our power and authority to help people up. Because he says, on the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Again, Jesus is turning the sinful worldview upside down. He's already said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. He's already said the greatest in the kingdom are those like humble, dependent children. He said to be first is to actually be last. He says you must lose everything. Take up your cross to gain eternal life and eternal treasures. He says you want to have high status? You want to be truly great? Then be a servant. To be a servant is someone who helps others. Their actions are for the benefit of the one they are serving. This was countercultural in ancient times, just as it is today. As one ancient Greek philosopher said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? And so it's totally bizarre to them. They said, how can we be happy if we're going to be servants? And Jesus is saying, exactly, to be truly happy, to be truly great, to have true joy, to live as God created you to live, you're to live as a servant. That is true greatness. So for us today, what are some practical ways that we can serve others? And specifically, because Jesus frames this discussion in the context of authority, places of status and position, and we talked a lot about throne imagery last week, how can we use our authority, the authority that you have, to serve others? Now, you probably all have a position of authority in some way in some relationship you have. Maybe the position you have in your family. People look up to you. You have sway on decisions. And especially for husbands in the family as they lead their families. For example, I was talking to a friend this week. He's a biblical counselor, and I told him what I was preaching on. Um, and he says, he's like, that's my go-to verse when I'm counseling uh, husbands and wives and what biblical leadership and authority look like because a lot of times in the family the the husband can think that to have leadership to have authority is to push the family down is to get them to do whatever he wants to follow his way to serve him in any way but my friend says no jesus says to be great to be the leader to be the husband that you want to be is to be a servant so he says this is his go-to passage for teaching men and women this. So for husbands, how can you serve your wife? How can you serve your kids this week? That's true greatness. That's true leadership. And for wives and kids, 
How can you serve each other? How can older brothers and older sisters serve their younger siblings? So even though you may be bigger, stronger, or smarter than your younger siblings, don't use your strengths to bully them or to get your way. Instead, use your strengths to help others. This is the, this is the same in all areas of life, in your job, in your friendships, in the church. Because this specifically uh, has relevance to me and the deacons as a, as a pastor and leaders of the church. That how, we, how are we to lead? We are to be servant leaders. Not a top-down, oppressive, but we are to be uplifting, lifting the church up. Not using our authority and leadership for our own gain, but to build you guys up. The leaders in the church family should look more like Jesus than the rulers and tyrants of the world. And Jesus goes even beyond a servant in verse 27. He says, whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. So in Jesus' time, a slave would have been of lower status of even a servant. Jesus is stressing the sacrificial nature of his disciples and how we're supposed to live for others rather than live for ourselves. And we have Jesus, our Savior, as the ultimate example of what it looks like to serve others. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all things, the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, if anyone had the ability to say, that's beneath me, it would be Jesus. But he says, no, I've come to serve, not to be served. In comparison, we think about our lowly status in the world and how prideful we are. It's ridiculous. We think, oh, that's that service project or that thing to do. That's beneath me. I have this much money. I have this job. I have this family. Do you know who I am? Have you ever thought that, right? But Jesus says, no, be humble. Be a servant. Look at me for the example. He gave his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus willingly came to earth, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, and died so that many could be saved from their sins. Jesus was a ransom for us. So what is a ransom? So, geared toward the kids, but you could apply this to you. Imagine I take your favorite toy. <laughs> And I say, I'll give it back to you, but you have to pay me a million dollars. That million dollars is the ransom price to get your toy back. Now, for Jesus to save us from the power of sin, that is to free us from sinning against God, from disobeying him, not loving him. In order to save us from the power of sin, Jesus had to pay a price, pay a ransom price. In order to give us new hearts that love and obey God. And the price he paid was his life. And not only did his sacrificial death pay the price to free us from the power of sin. His death also paid the price to free us from the punishment for our sin. Because we deserve the cup of God's wrath. We deserved eternal hell for our disobedience to a perfectly good and holy God. But Jesus took the cup of wrath. He took the punishment. He paid the price so that we don't have to. And Jesus paid the price for all kinds of people. 
all kinds of sin. There is no person and no sin that his death can't cover. It is the ransom price paid once and for all. It is the only way we can be saved. And Jesus calls us to trust in him and him alone to save us. And once you're saved from eternal punishment, and once you're saved from the power of sin, Jesus says, follow me and do what I do. Be a servant. Live as a living sacrifice. Give up your life. Give up your desires, your preferences, your comforts, your money, your talents for others. For the benefit of others. For the glory of God in his kingdom. And this is not to earn salvation. But this is to follow Jesus. To follow your servant king. Who saved you by his death and resurrection. So I'm going to close with a reading from Philippians who summarizes this teaching very well. Philippians 2.5 tells us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. So we see Jesus being last in the world's eyes was made first. He, he was last. He died. He was crucified. He was mocked. But because of that, he was exalted and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will confess Jesus to be the Christ, to, the, to be the Messiah, to be God. The question for us today is will you confess Jesus now? Will you confess him today? Will you live for him and follow him today? Will you see Jesus for who he is now and follow him? And the key for this week to follow Jesus is following him by becoming a servant, by living for others, using your power, using your authority to lift others up, not push them down. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing, insightful teaching of your son, Jesus. God, we forget, we, we, we ask for forgiveness where we have fallen short. God, help us be servants. Help us to see where in our life we can root out any pride, any arrogance. God, let us follow the example of your son. And God, if there's anyone here today, I pray for them specifically that they would choose to follow you. If today is the first day they've never trusted in you for their salvation, I pray that they would. I pray that they would see that they can't pay the ransom price on their own. That they would see their sin for what it is. That they would respond in worship and trust in your salvation. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.